My name is Jeff Galvin. I'm a partner at the Downey Brand Law Firm based in Sacramento. I sometimes call myself a sibling lawyer because many of my cases involve disagreements between brothers and sisters over the trust created by their parents. When one or more of the siblings takes on the role of trustee, there's often conflict between the trustee and the beneficiaries. Maybe the beneficiaries complain that the trustee is moving too slowly, or maybe it's about mismanaging assets, or perhaps the concern is that the trustee is favoring his or her own personal interests. Today's topic, whether and when a trustee should be removed from the position, very often comes up. We have two guests today. The idea for this podcast came from a Trusts and Estates quarterly article written by Denise Chambliss. Denise, welcome, and please introduce yourself. Thank you, Jeff. Glad to be here today. Uh, my name is Denise Chambliss. I've been an attorney for about 25 years. I'm a shareholder with Hogue Fenton with our main offices in San Jose, and my practice is uh, exclusively in trust and estate litigation. Terrific. We're also fortunate today to have a perspective from retired Superior Court Judge Marshall Whitley, who now mediates trust disputes. Judge Whitley, would you please say hello? Hello, and uh, thank you for having me, Jeff. Hi to you, Denise. We go back a little bit. I am pleased to be here to discuss a topic that I have been professionally passionate about for decades now. Denise, let's begin with the trustee removal case that you wrote about the case of Trollin versus Trollin, which arose in Santa Cruz County. Can you tell us what happened in the probate court there? I sure can. The case of Trollin versus Trollin, it involved administration by six co-trustees. As you mentioned, Jeff, all family members, brothers and sisters. So the parents could not pick and have one kid in charge of the trust. It was all kids. For me, in my experience, this is a recipe for disaster. So as the six co-trustees were trying to administer the trust, they came across a couple of disputes and fights over the uh, terms of the uh, actual trust, what to do. Was it required to liquidate all assets and distribute money or distribute out in kind? That's a very common um, situation I find myself in. Fundamentally, what gets me is they were fighting over the value of assets. And so whenever you're looking at you know going to court, fighting over trust interpretation, trustee removal, this is often a business judgment decision. And here they are essentially fighting over a difference in value of $200,000, a small amount. And so what happened at the trial court level in Santa Cruz, the judge made an interpretation on the trust and required that all assets would be sold and cash would be distributed. And then what really is the issue here, nobody had asked a question about removing any of the trustees, but the trial court on his own removed everybody and appointed a professional fiduciary. And there we go, off to the races. So in that case, there were five sibling beneficiaries and trustees who wanted to hold on to the real estate that was in the trust, and one sibling wanted to be cashed out, and that's where the conflict came up. None of them sought to remove the others, and yet that's what the trial judge did. So, Denise, how did the Court of Appeal then deal with the decision of the Santa Cruz Court? So the Court of Appeals took a look at the issue we're talking about uh, today, the removal of the co-trustees, and felt that the trial court had uh, exceeded its discretion in sua sponte, or on its own act, removing all six co-trustees. So that was overturned on appeal. Judge Whitley, any comments about how the Court of Appeal handled the removal issue in the Trollin case? Uh, Yes. Um, 
Let me just start out by saying this case has a lot of different angles to it, and uh, it's a great case to um, look at closely and develop. I think the Court of Appeal handled the matter pretty adroitly. I agree with the ultimate decision. I do want to sort of put a finer point on what uh, Denise said, and that is the sua sponte removal in and of itself, I don't think is necessarily beyond the uh, powers of the trial court. I think in this instance, the uh, Court of Appeals, as Denise said, found that it was because the basis for the sua sponte removal was a finding that was an incorrect finding, and that is that the trust required liquidation. And since the removal was based on that finding by the trial court, which was incorrect because the trust specifically said that the trustees could distribute in kind. That was up to the discretion of the trustees, and the trial court took that away from the trustees, and that was improper. But I don't want anybody out there to think that a court can't sua sponte decide to uh, remove trustees if the grounds are appropriate, because we do that all the time. It's ironic because when we represent trustees, we often urge them to be proactive and to go to court when disagreements come up so that the trust administration can go forward. Here, the five co-trustees did that, and yet they ended up being removed, even though they were trying to proactively deal with it. Well, let's move on to the substance of what it takes to remove a trustee. And Denise, with apologies to the sound of music... How do you solve a problem like trustee? What does an unhappy beneficiary have to show in order to get a order removing a trustee of a family trust? Or as you put it in your article, when is enough enough? Thank you. And I had to give a, a shout out and it nods to my uh, co-author, uh, Ariel Siner. I, I believe that was her uh, catchy title. Before I answer the question, I just want to briefly comment on what Judge Whitley was talking about. It is my experience as well. When I have co-trustees who don't get along, I almost expect that the trial court will remove all co-trustees and put in place a professional. It's just as a matter of common sense and functionality. That is generally the best way to help get the administration back on the tracks. So again, I'm not surprised what happened in trolling, but were they overreaching? I think that was a different question arising out of the interpretation. All right. So to your question, Jeff, what does an unhappy beneficiary have to show to remove a trustee? I've broken it out into three things generally. I'll just list them out and then I'll speak about each one. The first item that an unhappy beneficiary would have to show is a breach of trust. We look at probate code 15642 has a laundry list of grounds for removal. The second way to get a trustee removed is to show a conflict of interest, such as self-dealing or excessive compensation. And the third way is hostility. So that could be hostility between co-trustees, between a trustee and the beneficiaries, but any sort of infighting would be a trigger to cause the court to remove a, a trustee or a co-trustee. Well, Denise, that those are the basics of what it takes to remove a trustee. Obviously, every situation's different. Let me ask Judge Whitley, thinking back to your service as a probate judge, how did you generally approach the question of trustee removal? in terms of what you were looking for? Let's put it this way. I took my guidance and tried to always take my guidance from the trust instrument, number one. 
Then I looked to see what was going on in terms of the trust administration and what the uh, complaints were either by the other co-trustees or by the beneficiaries and tried to determine whether any of those occurrences were taking place on some consistent basis such that it wouldn't be a minor problem but would be a more significant problem tried to determine whether the trustee uh, was acting in good faith with the intent to act for the benefit of the trustee's charges, the beneficiaries, so as to, again, determine whether or not, you know, anything that was done were sufficiently improper under the uh, guidelines that uh, Denise indicated. And if I found that uh, was significant, then I would certainly not hesitate to to remove, because after all, what you're trying to do is is help carry out the intentions of the settlor, but also to uh, act on behalf of the beneficiaries to put someone in place that won't be sort of a lightning rod for issues going forward, causing too much expense and litigation. And so I try to um, keep that in mind as well if I'm going to remove. Is this going to continue to foster trust litigation? And I think that's what the trolling trial court was thinking. Well, one interesting thing, Denise, when I think about this area of the law, and you pointed out in your article, is that the decision as to whether to remove a trustee is supposed to be forward-looking. It's not about who did what to whom, who poked whom. It's about how can the trust be administered prospectively? Any thoughts there? Yes, you make a good point, Jeff. We know from case law that removal, this is not a punishment of past acts, but to preserve the trust assets for the beneficiaries. Let's turn to the procedural and strategic aspects of removal and talk about the process. Denise, as you know, trust litigation is not quick or cheap. So how does an aggrieved beneficiary go about seeking to remove a trustee? A couple of different ways that a a beneficiary could do that. One is just try to talk with the um, trustee and see if they'll just voluntarily step down and have a successor come up to take over. That rarely happens, but that's an option. More often than not, you have to go down to the courthouse, file a petition, and ask the court to make a ruling to remove the trustee. And in counseling uh, clients, beneficiaries, one of the things I look at, again, still cost-benefit analysis. And if the dispute is less than $100,000, I would suggest that we think long and hard about finding ways to avoid court to resolve the problem. But if it's over $100,000, your option is to go to court and get help from the judge. So does a judge have to have a hearing before a trustee is removed? Uh, Not necessarily. So when you uh, go to court, you file your petition, you get set for your first uh, hearing date. Uh, I've had instances where this situation was laid out on the pleadings enough, and at the first hearing, the judge says, that's it, you're out. I'm putting in place a professional fiduciary. I've had other instances that it wasn't so clear on the pleadings that you actually had to proceed to a trial or an evidentiary hearing, sometimes without live testimony, but mainly arguments of counsel. And Denise, there's been uh, a lot in the news lately about fiduciaries and conservators. When you refer to a professional fiduciary, what kind of folks are you talking about? Uh, Professional fiduciaries, they are um, more often uh, licensed by the state of California, and they're individuals that, as a profession, serve as uh, 
trustees appointed by families uh, can be appointed by courts, and their job is just to be the business manager of administering a trust or an estate, if it's a conservatorship, managing the, the uh, conservatorship of the person or, or their um, assets, their, their money. Judge Whitley, any suggestions for lawyers representing clients who are seeking removal of a trustee? Now, I'm, I'm, not, uh, I'm not a lawyer representing clients, but I do uh, see these matters once they come in uh, either to court in the litigation with the litigation teed up, and I see, it, I see them in mediation where they're trying to resolve their disputes either pre-litigation or during the, the litigation process. And following up with Denise's $100,000 cutoff, which I think is a good rule of thumb, there's always exceptions to every rule, of course. But I think one of the things that the clients ought to consider before teeing it up for litigation is whether uh, they can resolve this matter without uh, going into litigation. As you indicated, Jeff, I mean, this is a, it is a costly process. It is a time-consuming process, and once you file a petition, the lawyer has to allege all of the ugly things that need to be alleged to get this thing moving and to potentially persuade a court to uh, find in the petitioner's favor. So the responding party is going to look at that, and it's going to harden their position as well, uh, and they're going to take a defensive posture, which is often very offensive even. And before you know it, the fight is on, and then we've got to, like, turn the temperature down from that. And that usually takes a while. Well, usually what happens is the lawyer representing the unhappy beneficiaries will send some sort of demand letter or request to the trustee pointing out the concerns, raising these issues. And that's a good thing to do, I think, looking downstream at how the court's going to view this. Did the beneficiaries raise these issues directly with the trustee, or did they just go running into court? I think at that point, there are two paths that could be taken. One is the trustee denies everything, and the beneficiaries have to file a petition. The other way is that the trustee might send signals that they're open-minded to having a discussion and maybe moving on to some kind of a mediation path. And that's going to depend a lot, not only on the family members involved, but to some extent, the personalities and litigation styles of the lawyers involved, which sometimes you know because you've dealt with them before, and sometimes you're dealing with a, a lawyer for the first time. Denise, let's talk about what happens with appointment of a successor trustee. In your experience, and you touched on this briefly, how does a court go about thinking about who will become the successor trustee? Will it be another family member? Will it be a professional fiduciary? How does the court deal with that? There's a couple of different uh, options that the court can look at. If you look at the trust instrument, which is you know our guiding instrument, there's normally uh, the next person in line to be the successor appointment. But often that person is also a beneficiary, just like the trustee is also a beneficiary. So you're just kicking the can down the road by appointing another family member that doesn't resolve the dispute. Because when we're in these cases, it's generally not just an issue of removal of the trustee. There's something else going on, like in the trolling case. How are we going to distribute out the trust? What's the value of the assets? So it's generally a, a lot more than just removal of the trustee. So appointment of the family member, while allowable under the trust instrument, probably not going to solve the problem. Then you start looking at the appointment of a professional fiduciary, some neutral third party. 
And there's a couple of different ways we can get there. One, in your pleadings, when you're asking for the removal, you can suggest, point so-and-so. They're a professional, independent fiduciary, or a trust department at a bank, or a standalone trust department, depending on the size of the trust. That way you can queue up to the judge who would be uh, your choice. And then thirdly, my experience, most courts have a short list on their desk of uh, professionals that if they need to appoint somebody, that look at next in line, and that is the person going to be the uh, successor trustee. Let's jump ahead a little bit to the issue of legal expenses. Legal expenses are always a big issue in any civil litigation, including trust litigation. So, Denise, what are the financial considerations for a beneficiary who seeks a trustee's removal? Who, who pays the beneficiary's legal bills? More often than not, the, the beneficiary be paying out of their own pocket for the cost of you know, footing this litigation. Uh, I do know there are some attorneys out there that will take these on contingency basis. So the beneficiary doesn't have to pay out of pocket, but they pay a percentage uh, downstream of their future inheritance. And that's always a disadvantage of the beneficiary. How are they going to fund the litigation? Because they don't have the ability right out of the gate to tap into the trust. Now, down the road, there's a couple of ways that a beneficiary may get recovery of their attorney's fees. There's a, a common fund doctrine that if the actions of the beneficiary benefit everybody, that would be a grounds to having the, those beneficiary attorney's fees recovered from the trust. And the trustee starts with a war chest, right? Can the trustees defend removal petitions at the expense of the trust? Yeah, that is a, a common issue when we're talking about trustee removal is the trustee has the keys to the kingdom, to the piggy bank. So the trustee can start off using the trust to pay for the litigation. And if it's just, a, like I said, a combination trustee removal, a surcharge, maybe some kind of uh, ambiguous trust instrument, the trustee can go a long way paying their legal fees from the trust. Let's move on to the subject of, of mediation. And Judge Whitley, you transitioned, I believe, in about 2013 from being a judge to being a, a full-time mediator. Do trustee disputes, do trustee removal disputes lend themselves to mediation? And if so, why? Absolutely. I mean, I, I would go even further and say that they tend not to lend themselves very favorably to litigation. Instead, lend themselves more favorably to, to mediation. And the reason is that we're working usually with a, many layers driving the disputes. And these layers are best dealt with through a negotiation process rather than a zero-sum game type process, which is what litigation is. We get a winner and we get a loser. Courts are very limited in what they can do. And I think Trollin actually points out very clearly how limited a trial court is. And frankly, speaking on behalf of probate judges had trying to handle these busy dockets and these busy calendars and, and trying to handle the litigation, complex litigation often at the same time, you try to thin your calendar out so you can get through your days, your weeks, your months. Uh, and you try to anticipate uh, what may be coming back to your calendar in the future, because that is what causes your calendar to get thicker and thicker going forward too, and you try to make decisions that will will sort of resolve things as, sooner than later. And sometimes you can't pay the attention that a particular issue or issues require. 
And I think mediation allows for that attention to be paid to the issues that have to be unraveled. And if you look at that trolling case, what was being asked of the trial judge to do would have involved the trial judge in some very difficult and time-consuming decisions. And uh, trial judges often will look for that quick fix, that quick result to get it done and get it over with. And most of the time, you know, that works without it getting appealed. But this time it did. And so the appellate court had an opportunity to sort of slow it down, take a good look at it, and then find the problem there, which they did. They found that needle in a haystack, that pearl. But I can't fault that trial judge at all. And that's the problem you're going to run into if you try to continue to put your all your eggs in that litigation basket. More often than not, you're going to get into this zero-sum game situation and you're going to spend a lot of money and a lot of time. Those hundreds of thousands of dollars that you're going to spend and those years that you're going to spend, frankly, you can spend much less if you front load your resolution in some sort of counsel-to-counsel negotiation, which I really believe strongly in as well, or some third-party mediator-type situation, which I also believe strongly in as it relates to these kinds of cases. So, Denise, from a litigator's perspective, when is the time right to mediate a trust dispute that involves a trustee removal claim? My recommendation would be to start mediating, using that word in the sense of negotiating, even before you go to court. As I mentioned early on, having those conversations, and if you're representing the beneficiary, explain to the trustee what's going on, what the risk look like going down the road. Hopefully the trustee has an attorney so you can have some intelligent conversation uh, because you don't want to go into court and have never had that conversation and then ask the judge to help you out. You need to take that first step to help yourself out. So it's never too early to start what I call you know, mediating or negotiating the resolution, whatever you want. If you're representing that beneficiary and the trustee pushes back against the claims of trustee wrongdoing, why not just go to court and take the judge's temperature on whether the judge sees it like you do and see if you can get a removal or suspension at the first hearing? That's a call that I have to make based on the, the facts before me. For example, if it's a, a trustee who's taken a personal $100 million loan and expense and detriment of the beneficiaries, that's a, that's a stronger call. I might be you know, first to the court if the beneficiaries breached the duties that blatantly. If it's a more nuanced call, I like to be conservative in my approach and make certain if I'm going to the court and asking for something, I have good grounds to do it. You know, as you said, it is possible just to you know, make that your first shot out of the cannon, go to the court and ask for removal. But I have to have the facts laid out because it's a big monetary decision and expense you're putting your clients to when they're the beneficiaries. Just a few months ago, the California Court of Appeal decided a case called Breslin versus Breslin, holding that a probate judge can order parties in a trust dispute to go to mediation and also that parties who don't participate can be bound by the settlement agreement reached in mediation. So, Judge Whitley, since we have you here today, let me ask you about your take on mandatory private mediation. Is it a good idea for probate judges to go ahead and order parties to mediate now that we have the Breslin case? Let me say that I am a full-time mediator, 
And this may sound somewhat self-serving, but my answer is yes. But I also was the trial judge, a probate judge, who decided and handled these cases uh, as they came into the court. And my answer to your question as a probate judge is also yes. I think that, um, you know, absolutely my answer is yes. And I do think that this is something that the bar needs to ask for, ask judges to explore. One of the things I want to say about judges, and I just want to squeeze this in, this sort of dovetails on your last point, going in and asking the judge to, say, suspend or remove immediately, judges tend to be very, you know, reluctant to be dragged into making some early decision. I mean, our decisions have to be based on, you know, some findings of fact and, you know, something that we can sort of hang our hats on. And so we tend to be not very proactive. So to get us uh, to actually do something and to make some decisions early on is very difficult. The likelihood of getting something done early on is slim. You know, unless you really bring the body in, so to speak, and, you know, it's bleeding profusely. I mean, otherwise, you know, a judge is going to want to take time and, and hear the other side of the story. That kind of thing doesn't, you know, allow an Earl judges to sort of jump in early and, and, and get you what you want. And I think what uh, Breslin does is it allows judges, once the lawyer asks for it, and once the lawyer says, judge, do this, we request that you do it, we think that it would be beneficial. And as I said earlier, it doesn't have to be a one-time shot. Mediation sometimes softens things up. And even if it doesn't resolve then, it softens it for some later resolution, or it refines the issues because you walk in with all of these causes of action and all of these grounds, and really your main point may be one or two of those grounds, one or two of those causes of action, but everything had to be thrown up against the wall, uh, you know, so that you can, uh, you know, cover yourselves. It does tend to help refine things, so I do think that it is the way, it's the step forward that I think we all ought to make to, uh, when it comes to these cases, uh, that is the correct step forward. Denise, do you have any comments on Breslin, your take on mandatory mediation? I, I do. As uh, Judge Whitley was uh, speaking, I was reminded we had a um, mediation with him probably, um, well, we were in person, so it was uh, the before times. So it, it involved a, a removal of a trustee, and so we were able to do that by negotiation, discussion, even before we went to mediate the underlying issues, asset management. And it was an all-day mediation. And at the end of the day, with the judge's help, we were able to come up with the settlement, and we had a property that was going to be co-owned by four parties, and they were going to sell the property. And of course, as that process played out over the next several months, I think it actually took like a year, the, the parties had gotten in that mindset of being cooperative with each other. So even though we didn't have to go back and have a second mediation session, getting them through that process, it really helped the, those four parties continue on, sell the house, and then distribute the assets out. So going into a mediation with a trust dispute, trustee removal, as in trolling, or the other related issues, it can play itself out and have benefits long after that one day of a mediation session. 
Well, Denise and Judge Whitley, we've had a great conversation today on the subject of trustee removal, litigation, and mediation options. I would encourage all of our listeners to take a look at the show notes where you can find a link to Denise's great article on trustee removal in the Trollin case, as well as a link to the Trollin opinion itself. I thank you both for joining us. And let me ask you, starting with Denise, how can our listeners reach you? To reach me, uh, let me give my uh, email address. It's Denise. Uh, dot chambliss at hoagfenton.com. And again, thank you, Jeff, uh, for having me on the show. And it's good to see you as well, Judge Whitley. My pleasure. And Judge Whitley, how can folks contact you? They can contact me through ADR Services, Inc. And, uh, they can go to that website. My uh, case manager is Katie Jones. It is wonderful uh, to uh, be here and discuss this Uh, with you, Jeff. I appreciate your questions, your focus, your knowledge in the subject. And Denise, that was a wonderful article in terms of trolling. And and frankly, there's still, I think, a lot more to mine in that case. So thank you very much. And it's a pleasure. It's good to see you again. And you can reach me, Jeff Galvin, at jgalvin at downybrand.com. Trust Me is a production of the Trusts and Estates section of the California Lawyers Association and produced by Foley Mara Studios. For further information, please go to calawyers.org, click on Sections, Trusts and Estates, and look for the Education tab to learn about upcoming live programs, online CLE and webcasts, as well as a broad range of low-cost self-study programs. Many of our guests are contributors to the Trusts and Estates Quarterly, the official publication of the section. Benefits of membership include the quarterly, along with email case alerts and other opportunities to stay current in the trusts and estates field. Please consider subscribing to this podcast so that you don't miss our next episode. And thanks for listening to Trust Me.